You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 9, Tony Ortega. When it comes to reporting on cults, not every person who reports on cults has it as their dedicated beat. But Tony Ortega does. For decades, Tony has been covering the Church of Scientology with the kind of dogged determination that we usually associate with people like Woodward and Bernstein. If you've ever seen the Leah Remini Scientology program on a and I guarantee you would recognize Tony Ortega. In his role as the editor-in-chief of The Village Voice, he brought the Scientology beat with him, reporting endlessly on the battle between a group called Anonymous and the Church of Scientology. Here with me today to talk about what it's like to be one of Scientology's number one enemies is Tony Ortega. Welcome, Tony. Tony, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about your experiences with Scientology is that a lot of those techniques that are used against detractors were started by Scientology, but a lot of groups have adopted the same tactics. All these groups use the same techniques. I, I mean, not just not just uh, ways with dealing with reporters, but how they deal with their own people and the sort of methods of control. It's, it's always interesting to talk to a former Jehovah's Witness person or somebody who was in the Moonies and you start talking about Scientology and say, but that's what they did to us, you know, and, and, and it shocks them. But um, all these groups have learned from each other and, and they defend each other. I, I, I found this wild recording of Jim Jones uh, in Jonestown, you know, he used to give these radio addresses every day. He went off on Paulette Cooper, this this journalist that I that I you know wrote a book about. He just went off about how she was lying about Scientology. I thought, why would Jim Jones in South America care about what the Washington Post is saying about Scientology? But it, it made me realize that they all kind of borrow from each other they sort of defend each other because they all they all sort of see themselves in sort of in this they, they know that they're all kind of in the same boat and and so but they but they definitely all draw from the same playbook it seems like there is sort of a natural alignment in the ideals of scientology and jehovah's witnesses but the one that but the alliance that a lot of people can't seem to understand is the one between the church of scientology and the Nation of Islam. It's such a strange relationship they have, and I'm still always kind of keeping an eye on it to see where it goes, because they definitely, you're definitely seeing more Nation of Islam people actually go through Scientology courses, but I'm still not seeing a real merging of the two. You're not seeing Nation of Islam people become Sea Org officials and helping to run Scientology, and you're not seeing well, white Scientologists at Nation of Islam gatherings. So it's a some kind of a relationship, 
But it's it's a strange one, and I think it's going to, in the long run, it's going to be bad for Miscavige, because some of these Nation of Islam figures, on the one hand, they're doing things with Scientology, they're getting awards for it, but then back at their, you know, uh, Nation of Islam hall, mosque, whatever they call it, they're saying these horrible, racist things, and... You know, I just think that Scientology's maybe going to end up paying a price for that. If you look up the history of Scientology, there was a point in the 70s and the 80s where Scientology was doing particularly well converting secular Jewish people. So I wonder if you're one of those people that has stayed in since that time, how you might feel about someone from the Nation of Islam joining your group. Well, they pretend that they are thrilled, and that's what's kind of wild, you know, as you see these people with Jewish backgrounds in Scientology, and they're acting thrilled that Louis Farrakhan is promoting Hubbard, and you think, how can you, you know, but they're just, they're so focused on Hubbard, they just don't see anything else, you know what I mean? We now know that Scientology is one of the biggest foes for the press, so I'd like to know why you got into covering them. I'm from L.A., and I, I, I don't think you can grow up in L.A. without at least having some awareness of Scientology. And I just sort of kind of knew that there was this thing, Scientology. I can still dimly remember reading about Hubbard dying in 86 in, in the local publications and that kind of thing. One of the first things I read about turned out to be false, and that's the, the, the apocryphal famous story of the bet that Scientology was started on a bet between L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein, and they had made this wager to see who could invent the most profitable religion. That never happened, but it was something I absorbed as a kid in L.A. and, and kind of thought, oh, yeah, the, these Scientology people, they're, they're full of it. So um, I had moved to uh, Phoenix, of all places, and I was a reporter for a, I had just become a reporter for a weekly newspaper. It was a really wonderful publication, still is, called the Phoenix New Times. And our job there as writers was to find things that the daily paper had either missed or done badly. And one day I was just searching through the letters to the editor in the daily paper because that was often a good place to find clues to that kind of thing. And there was this letter from Rick Ross who I didn't know at the time. And Rick uh, was this, you know, uh, cult deprogrammer, and he had been sued, and he had been beaten in court. He'd lost a $5 million judgment or something. And his letter complaining to the Arizona Republic was that, yes, you had covered my, my trial and, and reported my loss, but you didn't say anything about how it was actually the Church of Scientology that recruited the plaintiff against me. And I thought, wow, that sounds kind of juicy. And so I reached out because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, in what way did the Daily Paper miss the real story, right? And so it was perfect. So I reached out to him and he started telling me this wild story about, you know, his background is how he's, he's, he's actually, Rick is actually a specialist in Bible-based groups. But um, like I said earlier, these groups all kind of hang together and Scientology had decided that Rick Ross was a real problem. And so they had uh, created what's called a dead agent pack. And wherever Rick went, wherever he gave a talk, there would be a Scientologist in the back of the room handing out this packet of papers with documents. You know, like, for example, when he was 15, he had he had he had stolen something as a kid. Right. And so they had they literally had these court papers and stuff that they would hand out to people 
It's called dead agenting in Scientology. The idea it's this is an idea that Hubbard described that you you hand out these papers attacking the character of the person and then whatever that person says people won't listen to so they were dead agenting rick and uh so i researched it i wrote this big story it was my first cover story for that publication it came out in november 1995 and uh, i thought you know i really enjoyed it and and there was some really fun stuff in that story for example rick had been actually counseling one of david Korish's top lieutenants as he was one of the first of the Branch Davidians to to defect. And Rick was counseling him. Rick suspected this, and I found evidence that the Church of Scientology had made sure Korish knew about it because they were surveilling Rick. They knew that he was working with this guy. They made sure Koresh knew about it, and I confirmed that. And Rick said it was because they thought Korish was crazy enough to kill him. So I uh, so this this was the first story that established any kind of link between Scientology and the Branch Davidians. So I was hooked. I mean, I thought this is great stuff. This is really intriguing stuff. It, it's going on all over the place. Nobody talks about it. So this was a great publication in that I, I covered a lot of different things. I covered science stories, business stories, education stories, but they allow you to kind of develop a specialty. And so. A couple years later, another Scientology story came up in Phoenix, and that was a story about a guy named Jeff Jacobson, who was being picketed at his home, his private house, by Scientologists. So um, I wrote a story about him, and then not too long after that, I, I got transferred to their Los Angeles paper, back to my hometown, and then I was in the belly of the beast, right? I mean, I was I couldn't wait to investigate some other Scientology stories there, and that's how I got to do uh, Tori Chrisman's story. So I got to do several stories in Los Angeles, and you know the stories there were really uh, important stories. But you know they started to mess with me at, th- at that point. You know, I mean, uh, their their attorney Kendrick Moxon started to do some things that really creeped me out. And I think the thing about Scientology is they expect every publication to do a Scientology story at some point or another, right? And what confused them about us was that we kept doing stories about them. I was writing some stories for that. That name of that paper was New Times Los Angeles. And then um, we had I had a colleague there named uh, Ron Russell, and he was writing some great stories about Scientology there. And so this really started to get um, on their radar that we were just not giving up. The L.A. Times at one point had been the premier publication in the world for covering Scientology. That was in 1990, in the 80s, and in 1990, Joel Sapel and Robert Wilkos put out this incredible series about Scientology. But 10 years later, the Times wasn't doing very much. And so we really, you know, kind of had that field to our own for a little while. We were right there in the head, you know, L.A. is one of the international headquarters. And it was really getting intriguing. I mean, we were, we were breaking some very important stories. Ron Russell did this incredible story about a young man with brain damage, the church had just bled dry millions of dollars. And I had done the Tory Christmas story. I did the uh, Graham Barry story. So it really felt like we were on a roll. That paper then closed down in, in 2002. And the company moved me around a bit. I, w- I, I went back to Phoenix for a while. I went to, uh, I was a managing editor in Kansas City. I got my first editor-in-chief job at their paper in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And during those years, I really wasn't writing about Scientology because those towns didn't have much in the way of Scientology. Then the job opened up for editor-in-chief in the Village Voice in New York. 
and they offered it to me. I got up there, and I, you know, the thing about Scientology, about um, uh, the Village Voice at that time, we were working very hard to get people used to the idea of writing not just once a week for the physical newspaper, but every day for the website. And that was a big, believe me, this was a big transition at that time. And I'm just the kind of manager I like to set uh, an example. And so I know for young people today, they can't imagine this, but at that point, um, even just as recently as 2007, there were people that just felt that something that was only online just wasn't as valuable, that it, it only was real if it was on a piece of paper. And I had to kind of, you know, work against that idea. Say, no, you know, we reach more people online than we ever do in paper. And so I felt, you know, if I'm going to ask all these people to put something online every day, I should put something online every day. And so uh, the, what I started to do in, in 2007, 2008 was um, I – I was just so in love with the archives there. They had all these paper archives going back to the beginning of the Village Voice in 1955. And I would spend hours in there just going through this fantastic, you know, archival copies of the Village Voice from the 60s and stuff. And I came up upon it. And at this point, none of that stuff was online. None of it was archived. And I I decided what I'm going to do is every day I'm going to take a, a, another I- issue week by week by week by week and just pull out one story and put it on our website. And I called it Clip Job. For three years, every single day, I put a story from the 50s or the 60s and Village Voice uh, archives on our website. And I loved it. I mean, I found the first time uh, Bobby Dylan was ever mentioned in the Village Voice. I found the first article that a young comic named Walter, a.k.a. Woody Allen, was ever mentioned in the Village Voice. The political things that were going on with Washington Square back then. It was just fascinating. I loved it. And, the, and you know what? Nobody read it. <laughs> I mean, zero, I, would get, I would be lucky if I got two comments on one of those old stories. But I felt that I was doing a service and I was setting an example. And so I kept at it. And every day I'd put a little story up. And I was, again, I wanted to show these veteran journalists at The Voice, you can find something to do every day. Because we, you know, the, the, in, instead of a, a legendary newspaper that happened to have a website, we need to start thinking of ourselves as a daily digital news enterprise that happens to put out a weekly paper. You know, just got to kind of shift that thinking. Well, the other thing that was going on at that time, uh, as 2008 started, was that the anonymous uh, thing happened, right? The, uh, there was a video made of Tom Cruise in 2004, and in January 2008, it got leaked to the internet and went crazy. And Scientology tried with its attorneys to get it yanked down. A few publications refused, like Gawker very famously refused to take down their copy of it. This you know, group of people that had been hanging out online and kind of looking for a cause sprung into action and attacked Scientology. They called themselves anonymous. They've gone on to many other things. But for those few months in 2008, it was just an amazing phenomenon. And of course, what that meant was anything about Scientology at all online was being devoured. And I still had stories that I had written for the paper that closed down in 2002 that had never been published. So I took one of them. It's a 7,000 word story that I had written about the the Lawrence Wallersheim saga that I had written for the the paper in Los Angeles in 2002 that never was published because the paper shut down. 
and I put it on the website of the Village Voice, and it went crazy. Started, uh, I had some reporters that were reporting on some of the anonymous stuff. I started reporting on some of it, trying to explain to people why it was so significant, for example, that the anonymous people had picked this big protest on March 13th, and I was explaining that's L. Ron Hubbard's birthday and stuff like that. And anything I put on the website was about Scientology just went crazy. And then I'd put my clip job right in the morning, and nobody would read it. This went on for a few years, actually. And then in April 2011, this group of Scientologists showed up outside the house of Marty Rathbun. Now, by this time, I had been reporting on Marty Rathbun's blog for a couple of years. He, he Marty had been one of these top executives that came out and went public in 2009 and he had started up a blog and it was really important to blog at that time he was reporting amazing stuff about from inside the church and i was keeping an eye on it. i was writing about it occasionally at the voice and then this goon squad showed up outside of his house in april 2011 down there in south texas and they stick they stuck around day after day after day it was this incredible story of this guy being besieged in his own home by this church goon squad. And I was writing about it every day, and I was the only person writing about it. There were a couple of local journalists that did some good work, but but basically uh, in the country, I was, you know, here I was in New York City covering this Texas story day after day. And at that point, and, and of course it was just hugely read, I got so many comments. At that point I said, look, this this is very obvious, the clip job thing, I like doing it, it's important. But it's just not getting read. Scientology is now a story that you can do every day. And that's when I made the decision to switch over. So in April 2011, I began blogging about Scientology every day. And I, I, I had made the decision that there was something going on, not just, not just outside Marty Rathbun's house in South Texas. There was stuff going on in Los Angeles. There was stuff going on in Europe. There was stuff going on in South America. And that's when I decided that um, – that that was a really good way for me to use the Village Voice website. And I very quickly became the most read blogger in the entire company. And the other reason why it appealed to me and why I decided to give myself this job of a beat reporter of Scientology was that, you know, over the years, there have been so many great exposés of Scientology from, you know, Martin Gardner in 1952 to Daily Mail in 1969 did a fantastic series on Hubbard. Back then it was less of a joke. There were government investigations in the 60s and 70s that were incredibly important. The Washington Post in 1978, incredible series. Well, the St. Petersburg Times in, in the late 70s, early 80s won a Pulitzer for exposing how Scientology had sneaked into that town, Clearwater, Florida, and, and taken over. And then, of course, the LA Times series in, in 1990, and probably the single biggest blow Scientology ever took, the May 1991 cover story on Time magazine. Year after year, there would be these fantastic journalistic exposés. But, you know, what happens, what always happens is a month later, people have kind of forgotten about it. And, and Scientology can kind of go on and do what it's always done. And I realized that this was really the perfect subject for daily monitoring, not just some new story, new development every day, but follow-ups and connections showing how the lawsuit that was filed, was filed today is like the lawsuit that was filed three years ago, and then connect those things. And, and, and that's, I, I felt like that was the kind of thing that Scientology had always gotten away with was the sort of um, amnesia of print journalism. I went to write a book about Paula Cooper and I started up my own website, uh, The Underground Bunker, TonyOrtega.org, and I continued my 
daily beat reporting. And that website just passed its seventh anniversary. So, you know, that's how I got into it. And uh, I just am endlessly fascinated by what's going on over there. I have great sources. I have great correspondence. And it kind of took on a life of its own. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.